Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Journalism, part of the New Books Network. I'm Jenna Spinelli, a journalism instructor at Penn State and host of the Democracy Works podcast. It is my pleasure today to be talking with Andrea Wenzel, Assistant Professor of Journalism, Media, and Communications at Temple University and author of Community-Centered Journalism, Engaging People, Exploring Solutions, and Building Trust, which was published in August of 2020 by the University of Illinois Press. Andrea, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you. So you start the book talking about your journey from reporter to academic. I think that's a good place to start this conversation as well. Can you uh, talk about your kind of career journey and where engagement journalism entered the picture? Sure. Um, so I I was really lucky in that I had a, a pretty sweet job in public radio um, when I first got out of school, and I I loved many things about it. But my my day to day was was producing a global affairs program, and the downside was it was terribly depressing um, to talk about war and disaster every day. Um, and I found that one of the things that gave me a bit of relief, and I thought, well, this might be giving our you know, our audience a bit of relief was when we had stories that were focusing on on, on things that were being done to address problems. Um, this was before we had the language of solutions journalism. Um, but at the time, I started a series where every week we'd ask um, community member or, or listeners mostly to nominate what they thought of as like a project or a person who is doing something constructive to address a, a problem in the world. Um, and we, we did this series every week, and it was hands down our most popular segment. Um, and we had a you know a big reaction to it. We ended up doing like face to face like expos where we brought people together to talk with different groups and organizations who were doing you know interesting work around the world. Um, and that got me you know interested in kind of you know, can can this be a way of doing things a little differently. And I got to then experiment some more with that and to um, integrate more components that I would probably call engagement 
or engage journalism now um, in my work when I um, ended up doing a number of media projects in different countries, um, including in Sri Lanka, where we did a project called Fix It, where we would ask um, people to, this was during the Civil War at the time, and we'd ask people to tell us about you know, what's a problem that you're struggling to address? And we're going to, one of our reporters will go out and try to help you like figure out what's going on. <laughs> and so it might be like a giant pile of trash outside their house that no one collects um, or something else. And they would just go with them and figure it out. And that again was like much more enthusiastically received than some of the other, um, you know, things that were just looking at the problem. Um, and so that, that process um, and then later on, I had an opportunity to work in Afghanistan with people who had a really sophisticated um, approach to integrating research into the programming that they did. Um, it was part of the, it was a, an Afghan NGO that worked with the BBC locally. And they did, you know, they did, you know, documentary style reporting, but they also did things like radio soap operas. And they would go around to different villages and talk to people about like, what are the challenges you're facing, but also like, how are you, you know, solving your own problems in different ways? And like, what strategies do you take? And they would find out from people, you know, from their, in their words, and the, you know, hear how they spoke about it. And they would take that back and then use that to, to make their programs. It's like, wow, that's so cool. Like, how can we never do anything like this in the US? You know, not that you can apply things, you know, plop them down exactly that way. Um, but through my experience doing all this, um, like kind of not having words to describe it, but but experimenting in different processes like that, um, when I finally got the chance to go back to school to, to get my PhD um, later on, it's like, oh, I, I want to look into this more. Because, you know, when you're in the, doing the day-to-day, you just never have time to really think it through and, and think about what's working, what's not working, and how can it be, you know, strengthened. Um, and so, you know, once I went back for my PhD, I learned that and there's a lot of people smarter than me who've been thinking about this for a long time and had language for it. And at that moment, um, around the same time, the Solutions Journalism Network was starting up. Um, you know, I learned more about traditions of public journalism and things like peace journalism. Um, and it was this was still a little bit before words like engaged journalism were thrown around. But um, but that's sort of how I started looking into this as a researcher and trying to kind of connect um, my experiences back to that. That's great. And before we, we dive into some of the, the specific uh, case studies that you look at in your book, can you just talk a little bit more about what engaged journalism is to that point of words being thrown around? You know, we hear things like solutions journalism. Some listeners might be familiar with the, the concept of civic journalism from Jay Rosen. So can you just help orient engaged journalism within this larger ecosystem? Sure. Um, I mean, I would say engaged journalism definitely connects to um, civic journalism or public journalism. Um, it's sort of in that same thread and tradition. But I, I mean, there's, it's a word that is notorious for being used to mean everything from like clicks and shares to, you know, really in-depth, intensive, you know, face-to-face engagement. So it, it can mean so many things. Um, I, I think I define it and I, I'm looking at my notes here because I, <laughs> there's so many different ways it can be defined, but I talk about it as a, a range of practices that try to build relationships between journalists and the public to assess and respond to their information needs and interests and to involve the public to varying degrees in the process of journalism. Um, because I think those are sort of all key areas. Um, and, and I think it's, it's something that you can think of as, as, 
it can happen on a spectrum. So there can be, um, you know, sort of just like things that are more transactional and then things that are more um, relational and, you know, asks to community members to share an idea for a topic, or it can be actually working with them to develop something. Um, but at its heart, I, I kind of think about, you know, work that is with and for communities and um, that is trying to respond to their information needs and involve them in the process. Yeah, kind of, you know, breaking down that fourth wall, so to speak, you know, putting there's like this, I don't know, I feel like when I went through journalism school, it's like this, this armor that you put up to, to be a good reporter, it's kind of breaking some of that, that down a little bit, um, which I, I think you you also talk about in the book, this, this approach, and some of the others you mentioned, really challenged what are, have long been thought of as norms in, in journalism and in journalism education, certainly I think things like objectivity, for example, um, how, how to does, how does engagement journalism kind of grapple with those longer held tenets of, of what we've seen journalism as historically? Yeah, I mean, I think objectivity is at a moment, I feel like we're in a moment right now where there's more and more people having really thoughtful conversations about objectivity, writing books about it. I mean, people have been writing books about it for quite a long time. Um, but uh, it you know, it's something that can be interpreted in many different ways. I feel like the dominant interpretation of it has been problematic and harmful to a lot of communities um, in that it has a, had a tendency to reinforce existing power dynamics and you know, the, the idea of like looking for both sides or two sides of something is tended to end up with overrepresenting people who are in positions of authority, often white men, um, and just and, and encouraging journalists to keep a distance from from communities themselves um, and from stakeholders within communities who are seen as having quote an agenda, um, you know, as if the people in power that they're talking to don't. So it's it's um I think it's it's something that's long been problematic. I think that um, you know, the framework that I use of, of community centered journalism, which sort of draws on both engaged journalism and solutions journalism, um, I think would challenge that it's not a helpful <laughs> norm and that um, it, it creates distance where that there doesn't need to be distance and that doing work that's um, community centered, you're not necessarily advocating for say a political party or a particular group, but you're advocating for the, the information needs of a community. Um, and that that is something that, um, you know, the idea of like being objective and keeping a distance is not helpful. Yeah, and I think you you kind of illustrate some of these points really well in in a case study in the book. I believe it was in Los Angeles or or that somewhere in in California where they're you know. B- the media outlet brought together, you know, citizens and reporters and people from community organizations, and they had these kind of dialogues. Can you uh, tell us tell us about that project and and how it kind of illustrates? I, I'm picturing your triangle diagram in the book of uh, communication infrastructure theory and sort of the the relationships between those three groups: citizens, community organizations, and reporters or, or journalists. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I draw on this idea, which is, you know, it's a wonky academic theory, but I think it's actually really practical in that it looks at, you know, community, it's based on research that's looked at different 
kinds of neighborhoods and communities. And it's found that when there's strong relationships between residents, community groups, and local media, there tends to be higher levels of civic participation and higher a, a greater like shared sense of understanding of what the community issues are and a sense of belonging. Um, and so in um, South LA, um, and at the time I was working with a research group that kind of used this framework, um, we we helped to organize a series of workshops where first we brought together, this was based on, you know, my colleagues having, you know, for years been doing outreach and engagement with different community organizers in this area and kind of having a sense of what the challenges were. Um, and they had you know, long known that there was a lot of distrust between community groups and local media because the community groups were frustrated that the local media kind of only in their view, came in when something terrible happened or kind of like would call them up and like get a source and then never really like have any accountability to them or the community. Um, And so there wasn't much trust there. And so we organized a series of workshops first um, with each of them separate. So with with, um, community organizers separately and then with journalists separately. And then we connected them. And one of the things we did, which... I thought worked surprisingly well was we did kind of like speed dating with them (laughs) where we had them basically sort of pitch like their, their, what they did. So like the organizations would share, like, here's what we work on. Here's who our constituencies are. The the media would share like, you know, here's, here's what we do. Here's the kind of stories that we are generally looking for and how we kind of go about things. Um, And through that process, it was sort of the beginnings of relationships and from that grew a series of um, solutions journalism stories that they collaborated on um, in the, it was, it was looking at the anniversary, it was tied to the anniversary of the, um, the Watts uprisings, like the 50th anniversary. Um, and they did a series looking at you know, different solutions oriented stories about South Los Angeles. And from that, um, we then would circle, we circled back with residents to find out how they received those stories and what was it like to um, to hear solutions oriented stories about your neighborhood, particularly if you're in a neighborhood where you really only hear about your community when something bad happens, um, and how did that sort of change their relationship with with the media and with that kind of storytelling? Yeah, and that's. Yeah, that's that's a super important point about, you know, in in certain communities, particularly communities of color. Yeah, the only time that they see reporters or interact with them is when something bad's happening. So that that breeds distrust, that breeds a kind of a, a tuning out maybe of just not not, you know, why should I pay attention to this when all they do is talk about the bad stuff kind of thing. And that that plays itself out over and over and over again in the case studies that that you look at in the book. And um, but it also kind of butts up against this notion that that a lot of these projects are very short term. They're like pilots or they're grant funded or they're something and there's not enough time, it, it seems, to really break down some of those barriers or, or kind of go the last mile, maybe. So can you, I guess, talk a little bit about how these news organizations are, are thinking about that that piece of it and, and maybe, you know, what what can all of us do if, if, if we agree that this is, this is a good model and a good concept to move forward? What can, you know, we all as, as people who think about and, and study journalism do to help kind of move some of these things forward? That's a, it's a really important and kind of gigantic question. <laughs> I mean, it's it, so much of this work comes down to sustainability, both in terms of 
of, of resources and money, but also time. Um, and it's, you know, there's, we can't assume that like, just making a good thing is going to lead to it making money or, you know, it's a, it's a huge problem. All or almost all of the projects that I I looked at in this book are had some, some degree of, you know, philanthropic support um, or yeah, they almost all were grant funded. Um, And so, or not, not, not all, but mostly. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to answer the sustainability question in an easy way. Um, I think that, you know, I think we can hopefully, many of us agree that the, there's probably not a market solution for, for much of this kind of work and that the business model is broken and, you know, advertising revenue and things like that are not going to be the way to deal with it. I mean, as with most of journalism. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I think that, um, there's ways of weaving in this sort of approach to doing community-centered journalism into all the work of journalism and just sort of making it normal journalism, mm-hmm. um, I hope. <laughs> and I think some organizations are, you know, closer to that idea than others um, and are, you know, accepting that. But no matter what, even if it's just sort of seen as part of the normal work, it is something that requires resources and requires time. And this, is, this I think, is very similar to any initiatives around inclusive journalism as well, like initiatives, diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives, I think, have similar challenges in that you're asking people to sort of do their work in a way that can take more time. Um, and so our resources are not infinite and especially for local journalism which is already so stretched and stressed and to be like oh here can you do this other thing and i don't have more money for you (laughs) it's it's really a painful ask um and i I recognize that um but i think that it's something that if people are concerned about building trust with their communities is worth exploring like how you know how could we make this happen in some way um, maybe it's not, you know, an incredibly intensive project, but are there other ways of sort of integrating elements of it? Um, and I should also add that some of the projects I looked at are not necessarily projects that, you know, are reliant upon just a news organization. You know, there's there's a role here for other kinds of community stakeholders and or new projects that maybe aren't a traditional news outlet. That doesn't solve the problem of needing resources, <laughs> um, but that's just to kind of add on that it's not, you know, it's, it, there's other actors that could potentially be involved, including, you know, other kinds of organizations that I think we could be open to imagining um, having a role in journalism that we traditionally haven't. So like libraries or community organizations or, you know, looking at different variations of what we used to call citizen journalism. So, I mean, I think there's, there's other ways of kind of exploring this, none of which completely solve the problem of resource needs, but I think, you know, it's a, it's a tricky thing. (laughs) Right. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Right, yeah. Yeah, as you said, a, a big question and one that we're certainly not going to, to fully answer in, in the course of, of this conversation. But, um, you know, I've, I've been thinking a lot about Chicago, this that seems to be kind of a hotbed for for a lot of this activity, and as a way to kind of bring this down to a, a more sort of on the ground level. I, I've been thinking about your example in in the book from WBEZ. I believe it was called the Curious City Project, and so that's to, to my mind like engaged journalism at a traditional like legacy media organization. But then there's also um, City Bureau, for for example, and, and perhaps other sort of newer media organizations that are explicitly, you know, community focused in, in some way. And so can you kind of compare and contrast what the, the engagement or community journalism looks like at uh, you know, legacy organization versus something that's that's maybe newer and more directly engagement focused. Sure. Um, so it, I think that Chicago is a really great place to kind of consider. Um, uh, yeah, so I think Chicago and Philadelphia they're just kind of both spoiled for for good examples. Um, but WBEZ, uh, Chicago, the public radio station, their Curious City project. Um, I think it's evolved a lot over time and, and continued to evolve past the moment where I was writing about in this book, but, you know, it started out as, um, you know, looking for ways to basically crowdsource ideas for stories. And then to some degree involve the people who asked questions that they wanted reporters to answer in the process of doing the reporting. Um, this is using the Parkin platform, which people may be familiar with that a number of different newsrooms use. If you, you might not, you might use it and not even know it. You go to a website and it says, you know, what questions do you have about your city? Or, you know, it might be framed in a much more nuanced way than that. But anyhow, so it, it's, it's something that um, they realized that they were getting, they were just hearing from the same old, same old people. They were not hearing very much from um, majority black and brown neighborhoods of the city. Um, and so they wanted to understand how they could do a better job at that. They did a sort of an experiment where they did try different outreach methods. And what ended up being the most effective was kind of a really basic approach of collaborating with libraries to set up tables and just, you know, meet people who were going to the library anyhow and, and get them to ask questions. Um, and it was, I mean, they got a lot of, they it really expanded who they heard from and that kind of helped to shape the agenda of the news stories they were reporting through that process. But even that had limitations. And I think part of it was, you know, part of it kind of comes from being in a, in a more traditional newsroom where, and being in a newsroom where there's like distinctions historically between like what they think of as marketing and like thinking of it, of some things the lines between engagement and marketing being muddled. So, or, or being, being like something that they were not quite didn't have their heads around. So for example, like they wanted to, um, you know, do if they wanted to sort of circle back and share 
you know, do events with community members. Like there are different people who did that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, they didn't, there are some basic things that they could have done that they didn't do at the time. Um, like just have a flyer to tell people how to hear the program and like how to follow up. And so there, there's different ways that, um, that they, you know, could have kind of done more to create a feedback loop with the community members. And since then they have done a lot of things to try to improve that. But I think that there's like sort of a curve in, a, you know, the ability to adapt when you're in a larger organization that might have norms about how it interacts with communities. And, you know, they also had like the constraints of objectivity norms that were like very much in effect of like a skepticism of working with community organizations and not wanting to be sort of tied up with the agendas of community organizations. And I think that's something that can be a real barrier to doing this sort of work. And there's something that's worth questioning. Um, you know, when you talk about a group like city bureau, it's you know, completely, um, free of so much of that, <laughs> um, baggage um and and there's there's so many things that like connect them and make them you know these are two organizations that i think do a lot of things right and that do a lot of really great work um the city bureau you know it's it's set up with like its core mission being looking at you know equity and representation and, and engagement and it's like that's so much baked into it um that it's not like it has to undo stuff um, for, for the most part, they're able to kind of start fresh and there's a lot that's freeing in that. Um, I, you know, I think it's, it's really great when you can have it be a both and situation where you have both of these kinds of groups working in the same space so they can kind of push each other and you can reach different groups of people. Um, but yeah, I mean, city bureau through projects like documenters, um, and all of their work, you know, are doing really pretty groundbreaking things in terms of reimagining who does the work that we traditionally associate with journalism and reimagining like what, what are the priorities of journalism? Um, and I, I, you know, I think like pretty much most, they, they've gotten a lot of attention and a lot of support and funding. Um, but I think it's all been very well deserved. I think people can resent the sort of golden children of this space, but I think like I have nothing but, Nothing but props for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, totally. They're they're doing really, really great work. Um, so we've we've talked about kind of big cities so far, sh- Chicago and and Los Angeles, but this is not exclusively uh, a, a concept in urban areas. I know you also look at an example from a rural community. Um, talk about how this model is similar or, or perhaps different in a, a non-urban area. Sure, I guess like all the case studies I look at one thing that ties them together is that they're all communities that in some way or another have been marginalized in some way. And so I think for, you know, that's, it's kind of an obvious case in many communities of color in in different cities. Um, but also a number of rural communities have historically been stigmatized in national media in particular. Um, but also just, you know, in various ways, um, when you look at the kind of regional context as well. And so one of the projects I looked at was in a a rural area in Western Kentucky um, where there was a, a, we did, we did a a similar, we did the process of looking at what are the information needs of the community um, and then inviting people to come together to brainstorm um, what they saw as intervention, possible interventions to to meet those needs um, and to respond to them. 
And out of that grew a few projects. And one of them was a project working with uh, a hyperlocal, or I don't even know if I should say hyperlocal, a local online outlet called the Ohio County Monitor um, that served a really pretty geographically big county um, with, and it was just two brothers doing it. Um, who were, you know, like they're the owners, the editors, the photographers, everything. Um, and they had to cover this really big county um, with just them and very little in the way of budget. <laughs> um, and so they, um, one of the things that we did that I think um, is, I, I argue throughout this book that like, I don't think there's one answer for all local journalism. There's not something that can be like scaled in different places, but you can look at a process. And so by looking at what are people's needs, but also looking at what are the assets that are already there. Um, in this case, we were able to look at, okay, there's like traditions in this community already. So for example, they have something called society columnists that they used to always have. And still some or news um, newspapers still have this sort of pre-Facebook idea of, you know, someone sends an update from their part of the county, you know, so-and-so had a baby, so-and-so had a guest from out of town, um, it's like, it's kind of a lot of the stuff that we think of maybe just coming on social media now. Um, but they were like, how can we kind of rethink that tradition and make it into a community contributors project where we could use it as a way to hear from parts of the county that we're probably not going to hear from otherwise. And also responding to some of the problems and concerns people had about feeling like their narratives weren't being represented. Um, and so they did that and they got a number of um, people to write monthly columns or, I mean, they're different kinds of stories, like really widely varying in, in the topics and the approaches. Um, but that was a really um, interesting way to kind of invite community members to kind of take ownership. They also did something they called Liars Tables Tours, where they would drive around to different convenience stores in the areas where if you would go in in the morning, you'd find a new table of you know old timers sitting around having coffee and solving the world's problems in their words. And um they, they were, these were like spaces and liars tables is their term, not mine. Um, but these are spaces where like, that's how you find out what's going on in that part of the County. And so they wanted to connect their readership, which aren't necessarily connected to these to know like what's going on, um, by dropping in on them and having a sort of listening tour to find out what issues were. And so that's, that's, those are just kind of a couple of small interventions that they tried to do to, to, connect more and build relationships with their, their audience and their, um, their community. And I think that, that sort of process of like looking at needs and assets can kind of help different kinds of outlets come to those spaces. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things I, I, I really appreciated about all the different cases you looked at. I, I think you're right that there's something that no matter where you live, what type of community you're in, there's like a little piece or a little like nugget of something you could potentially pull out, whether it's to put into practice or to teach or to yeah use in class, what, what have you. Um, so, you know, this, this book uh, was obviously written before the pandemic. Uh, I, I'm wondering what some of this work looks like now, if you've had follow-ups with any of the, the organizations you worked with, how they've, they've adapted their practices to the kind of reality we've been in for the past year or so. Yeah. I mean, it's so, it was so kind of gut-wrenching for the, <laughs> I mean, there's so many reasons everything is gut-wrenching, but it's like to see people who've been doing this sort of face-to-face -face work and having face-to-face -face be so much part of it, like trying to grapple with how do we do this when we can't be face-to-face. -face. Um, but the people have been doing it. And I think um, basically 
you know, a lot of the strategies that people doing this sort of work employ are basically using community organizing strategies and adapting them for journalists. And so one of the projects that I'm still connected to here in Philadelphia is called the Germantown Info Hub. Um, and they were able to pivot to um, online um, outreach and engagement, not without a hitch, you know, it was tough. Um, but they, um, they did, and, and we worked with them and another researcher worked with them to do like a kind of updated information needs assessment by doing online focus groups and then using that to kind of inform like, okay, what are the things people need? Um, and so they were able to do things like an online resource guide and also like print out copies and just like collaborate with um, the few spaces that were actually giving things out like food, like food um, delivery plate or sorry, like giving out food baskets and things like that. They would put the resource guides in that. Um, they were able to kind of find ways of meeting people's information needs and, and just like connection needs <laughs> um, in that new context. They also did things like uh, one of the things that grew out of the focus groups we did was we, people were saying, you know, we, we know there's a lot of groups doing different kinds of um, service provision for the pandemic, but we don't, we're not all connected to each other. And so like, like they, there's just a sense that we're missing things and, and different groups didn't know about each other and there might be repetition. Um, and so we had like a virtual town hall to help those groups connect with each other. And so we kind of try to, they, the information hub would provide a convening role of connecting different community organizations to help them connect to each other. Um, and so that was another thing that they did to try to, to respond to the moment. They, they continued to do... Um, they also shifted doing like a collaborating with the community radio station so they could have um, that be another way of reaching different people that weren't maybe necessarily connecting to them otherwise. Um, but they just, they, I think that they did a pretty good, I mean, are continuing to do um, a valiant job trying to figure out how to take these community organizing strategies and shift them um, and, and recognizing the people they're going to miss, um, and how to like, think about, okay, who's not online, who doesn't have access? Um, how can we connect with them through the phone <laughs> or how can we collaborate with different community organizations that have a network who have a phone tree or who have, you know, whatever processes that make the most sense for that part of the community to try to see how they could, you know, keep people from completely falling through the cracks as much as possible. Right. And, and now I'm sure the, the conversation is turning to, okay, what of those strategies we've developed over the past year are going to stick with us as we, you know, mm-hmm. are able to integrate face-to-face, uh, you know, events and activities back into our, our, our work and our overall planning? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that that's a conversation that's still kind of ongoing in terms of, you know, in many ways, there's, there's been opportunities as much as it's been this, you know, awful um, to connect with some people who might come to an online thing, but not a face-to-face thing. <laughs> um, and so I think that they'll probably be trying to think about how they can do combinations of you know, different kinds of hybrid things or, or having some things online. Um, you know, I think there's, they've done some projects like community, They've done a number of um, community narrative projects where they try to work with people to, to do some storytelling that they've used online platforms. And I think they're trying to think of now how they do um, 
some face-to-face outdoor <laughs> variations of that in combination to the online things. Um, so I, I think it's still kind of a messy moment of, of thinking that through. Um, but I think that there's definitely elements that are going to stick with it. I think there's been a number of like collaborations being built that um, are in connections between groups that hopefully will will continue on. Right. So you, you end the book kind of questioning or, or, you know, wondering about uh, whether what a a new type of journalist might look like, like what skills are necessary for this, this work that as we've talked about might not have been necessary or, or viewed as, as, as relevant in, in previous eras of the, the profession. So how should journalism educators be thinking, thinking about this moving forward? That's a really important question that I, I'm thinking as a journalism educator, thinking about a lot. Um, I think that there's a number of skills that we haven't traditionally done a great job at. I mean, nobody has really done a great job at um, imparting to journalism students. Um, so, for example, I think, you know, there's things like facilitation skills or Um, thinking about community organizing skills for journalists, um, things that haven't traditionally been part of our curriculum that I think would be really great to, to weave in more. And there are some educators who have been doing um, modules around that, you know, on facilitation or, you know, thinking about different elements of engagement. I think that's great. We need to learn from what's already been started, but I think that, um, you know, Oh, there's sort of two sides of it. One side is, you know, looking at how to, how to, to take apart the things that are, that don't work <laughs> or that are potentially problematic. I mean, things like addressing objectivity norms and addressing the potential harms that can come from some ways that those are interpreted. Um, but then also thinking about what are the, the, the capacities and the, um, the skill sets that journalists need or, or journalists interested in this kind of work in particular need. And I, and I hope that it's not just seen as like a niche pursuit and that and that's something I feel strongly about, not just in journalism education, but in newsrooms where I don't think this is, this should be the work of one person with engagement in their title. Hmm. I think it's something that, and that person gets siloed off and like never, you know, that's something I hear over and over again as a struggle from many people um, so I hope that that gets challenged in the newsroom, but also within journalism education, that this is something that could be, you know, taken as a module into any journalism class and doesn't just sit within the sort of specialized um, element of journalism. Because there certainly are specialized skills and might, some people might really want to like dig into those deeply. But there's other things that I think can be, you know, taken into any sort of reporting approach. Yeah, it's funny, as you were saying that I was thinking, oh, well, this, you know, maybe people could make this like uh, a special seminar or something that they offer. But but I think your your approach is is perhaps better, or, you know, more spot on that this really should be something that's part of the, the entire curriculum top to bottom, not just something students can choose to take or not. I mean, it could be a both and, <laughs> you know, I think like, because there, there are like, like probably not everybody's going to be like a total whiz at facilitation or, you know, like there's certain things that it might not be everybody's jam or it might not be, you know, realistic to begin with to make that everybody's thing. But I think that, yeah, I think in an ideal world, it would be integrated into everything, but also like if people really wanted to specialize, they could. 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, hopefully listeners, if they are, are interested in learning more, we'll, we'll pick up your book and, and check it out. But are there other resources you would recommend that, that folks check out if they want to learn more about this field and, and where they might fit within it? Sure. I mean, there's, there's so many, it's, I would say like, you know, I've mentioned community organizing. Like I think Free Press News Voices has a lot of great online resource guides looking at how journalists can adapt community organizing strategies. Um, so does the Listening Post Collective. They have a lot of great um, online play um, toolkits and playbooks and things like that. Um, obviously, we've mentioned a number of organizations like City Bureau. Resolve Philly also has a lot of great things. Um, but but yeah, there's, there's a lot of really dynamic work happening in this space right now. There's also other academic books. Um, Jake, Jacob Nelson has a new book that looks at some, it, it kind of points out some of the, the challenges of doing this work. Um, and and there's, there's others as well, but that's, that's maybe a starting point. Yeah, I'll be interviewing Jacob for the show. Uh, hopefully soon, so listeners can stay tuned Great. for that. It'll be kind of two sides to this this conversation. Um, and last question, Andrea, before we, we let you go here, uh, what what else are you working on right now? Is there a, a follow up to this project, or do you see it continuing in in some way? Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm looking at some things that are sort of follow up. Um, and one of the things I'm looking at are questions around, um, you know, if we are questioning things like objectivity, what comes in its place and thinking about things like what are guiding values for journalism? Um, what, like what could a process of figuring those out be look like and both at the newsroom level and then kind of the field level. Um, I'm looking at a number of question, number of case examples that try to address, um, like look at this grapple with structural racism within their newsrooms and the industry um, more broadly um, but kind of looking at questions around inclusive journalism and, and initiatives that try to make journalism a little bit more inclusive overall. That's kind of a, I'm at the, the muddy, not very good at explaining mm-hmm. it yet phase in my research, but <laughs> yeah. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that sounds like very, very important work. Uh, and so thank you for, for all of, of your efforts on that and for this this book as well, just to, to remind listeners again, it's called Community Centered Journalism, Engaging People, Exploring Solutions and Building Trust. And you can find it from the University of Illinois Press or wherever you get your books. So uh, Andrea, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.